Thank you, Ben. If you'll please take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark writes his gospel, which was the first gospel that was written. Gospel means good news. So he wrote the good news about Jesus, and he wrote it to mainly Roman Christians who were facing enormous persecution under Nero, who was Caesar of Rome. And so he writes this gospel in such a way that it both encourages and challenges these Christians by pointing to Jesus as the ultimate suffering servant who came to save us from our sin. Last week we looked at the beginning of Mark's gospel where he answers the question, Who is Jesus? And this week there's a follow-up question. What did Jesus come to do? Why did Jesus come here? And he answers that question by pointing out four key aspects of Jesus' ministry. And really, uh, here in these first, uh, the first chapter or so of Mark really is setting the stage. It's like a, pro, like a prologue for the rest of the gospel. So he, he's introducing themes that we'll see throughout the rest of this. And we're going to notice this really is a great summation. These four aspects of Jesus' ministry are central to everything that Jesus does we'll be looking at. And the first of those is his message, Jesus' message. Like John the Baptist, Jesus began his ministry preaching a very simple sermon. And uh, and we read that in verses 14 and 15. So if you'll turn with me, uh, Mark chapter 1. It'd be a good thing if I turned to Mark chapter 1, wouldn't it? Verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming, The good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus' sermon has two parts. An announcement and an appeal. We could call that announcement God's revelation. He begins with this revelation from God. And the first part of this revelation simply says, The time has come. Now what did Jesus mean by... Hold on just a second. I can't see all you lovely people over there. Let me move this. There you are. I want to make sure that you're paying attention. (laughs) What does Jesus mean by the time has come? Well, the Greek, there are two Greek words that mean time. One is chronos, which is where we get the word chronology. Okay, so chronos time is the sequence of events. Okay, it's quantity of time. But there's another Greek word. The one Jesus uses here is kairos. And kairos means quality of time. It's not about sequential events. It's not about length of time. It's about the depth, the importance of time, the supremacy of a particular moment. I like the way Paul uses this word in Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes, but when the set time had fully come, or some translations say, in the fullness of time. God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So Jesus was coming in the fullness of time. His coming was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan throughout history. So in verse 14, when Jesus says, the kairos has come, it does coincide with some chronos. That this fullness of time happened at just the right time. 
when John's ministry concluded and Jesus' ministry began, in that time, after John was arrested, and in that place, Galilee, in the person of Jesus, God stepped into history. The Creator became a part of creation through Jesus to reveal to us the nature of God and to complete His redemptive work. So the ending of John's ministry reflects that fullness of time. We can think of John as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so as John's ministry ended, so ended this Old Testament system of prophets, priests, and kings. Because in Jesus, we have the full and final, true prophet, priest, and king of all the world. But there's also, in in saying the time has come, there's a personal dynamic. In a way, that Kairos moment has, has kind of jumped over 2,000 years of Kronos time to speak directly to us. Jesus wasn't just saying the time has come for the people then. The time has come for you and me. The time has come for us to decide, who is Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? Jesus is speaking to us today, saying now is the time for you to make a decision. Why? Why do we have to respond now? Why can we not delay? Because, the second part of what he said, the kingdom of God is near. The time has come because the kingdom of God is near. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is simply the rule and reign of God in our world and particularly in our hearts. It's God's rule and reign. Now, Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago, he said the kingdom is near. Well, you know, theologians like to talk about the the already but not yet kingdom of God. In other words, the first time Jesus came, he instituted, he inaugurated God's kingdom on earth. But it won't come in its fullness. It won't be consummated until Christ comes back again. So the kingdom of God has come. It's here, but it's not here fully yet until Christ returns. But the reason Jesus and His ministry could say the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is at hand is because, well, Jesus was the king, right? And wherever the king is, there's His kingdom. Jesus came in His sermons. He preached about the kingdom. Every parable is about the kingdom. Even in His miracles, Jesus is demonstrating for us what the kingdom of God is. Is like What do people's lives look like? What does the world look like when God's rule and God's reign is allowed to be full in their hearts and in their world? So that's God's revelation. That's the message Jesus brought. The time has come because the kingdom of God is near. But then there's our response. What do we do with that? Jesus' message demands a response. You can't be ambivalent about it. You either have to believe it or not believe it. You have to accept it or reject it. And if you're going to believe and accept in Jesus' message, it happens in two steps. The first, he says, is repent. To repent means to change your mind, to shift your focus, to turn around and go a different direction. Listen, we are born lost and spiritually dead because of sin. We stumble around in spiritual darkness like we're blind. We are lost because we're following our sin-sick hearts and our, our destination is eternal damnation and separation from God. And so before we can repent, we first have to acknowledge that truth. 
We have to recognize that we're lost and confess, God, I'm going the wrong way. I'm on a dead-end road. I'm making a mess of my life. And then we decide to turn around and do something different. A great example of this is the story of the prodigal son. And here this young man has it all with his father, but he rejects that. He leaves his father's house. He goes out to live life by his own rules, to do things his way. And he squanders all of the blessings the father has given him, and he ends up destitute. He's slopping pigs, which is the worst job a little Hebrew boy could do. And there he is, so hungry, even the slop of the pigs looks good to him. And Jesus in his parable says, then he came to his senses. He looked around and he said, what am I doing? Where am I at? Why am I here and not in my father's house? But then he had to do something else. He couldn't just acknowledge that. He then had to get up and go home. He had to turn around. He had to change directions. See, just repentance on its own is not enough. Just simply acknowledging that you're sitting in pig slop and that's not where you want to be, is not enough. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, a lot of people, when they think of repentance, they're thinking worldly sorrow. They're thinking you just recognize, yeah, I kind of messed up. You know, I'm sorry, God. I, I'll try not to do that again. I, I feel really bad. I feel really guilty and ashamed. And, and they kind of beat themselves up and they think that's enough. But it's not. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow understands the weight of your sin against an infinitely holy God. It understands the consequences of that sin as eternal separation from God in hell. And so, godly sorrow acknowledges that and it doesn't just turn from something, it turns to something. And that's the second part. Jesus says, repent... And believe the good news. It takes both. You have to do both of those things. I like to use the phrase turn and trust. We turn from our sins and we trust in what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross. That is the gospel. The good news of the kingdom is that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Jesus, the price that we owe has been paid. He was mocked that we might be called sons and daughters of God. He was captured, that we might be set free, wounded, so that we could be healed, broken, so that we could be made whole. He was rejected, so we could be accepted. He died, so that we could live. He became sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Have you turned from your sin and put your trust? in the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've not done that this morning, I pray before you leave this building, before you log off on that computer, that you would do it right now. That's what Jesus preached. That was His message. And notice that Jesus first began His ministry of preaching and then He began to assemble His team. That's the second aspect of Jesus' ministry. His team. Now, by way of clarification here, uh, when we look at the Gospels as a whole, we get the bigger, broader picture of Jesus' ministry. Each Gospel writer kind of has their own perspective. They're, they're telling the parts of the story they want to bring out and talk about. Well, in John's Gospel, he mentions that this part of the story we're about to read is not the first time that Peter and Andrew have met Jesus. 
Peter and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist, and so they were exposed to Jesus through John's ministry. They'd already met Jesus once. But Jesus didn't call them to follow him at that moment, so they've gone home, they've gone back to their day job, they're working, they're fishing, and that's when Jesus comes to them, and Jesus extends to them his call. We see Jesus' call in verses 16 and 17. Let's look at that. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this was no mere invitation. This wasn't like Jesus asking them to go grab a bite of lunch with him. This was a command. This was a command that could either be obeyed or disobeyed. This was a call that had to either be accepted or rejected. And what was it a call to exactly? Well, it was a call to follow Jesus as students would follow a rabbi. There were lots of rabbis around first century Palestine. I mean, they, they, were, they, you know, they were teachers and they would attract this group of students. And the goal was for these students to learn the rabbi's teachings and then to spread that teachings on to others. So it was simply a call of a rabbi to disciples. It was a call to learn from Jesus and do life with Jesus. Again, this wasn't just like an invitation to a, a weekly Bible study. This would require daily sacrifice. They would be eating and sleeping and walking with Jesus every single day. And the result of this life of learning and walking with Jesus was that they themselves would become fishers of people. They themselves would go out and catch and bring in others to Jesus. Now, this is not a new image that Jesus came up with, this idea of fishers of men. Jesus is borrowing this from the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. In fact, let's put up on the screen Jeremiah chapter 16 where God says, But now I will send for many fishermen, and they will catch them. After that, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill from, from the crevices and the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed before my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin. In the Old Testament prophets, this image of being a fisher of men was an image of judgment. God is speaking about His unfaithful people who have turned to idolatry. And God's saying, I'm going to send hunters and fishermen out to catch them for judgment. Well, that's obviously not what Jesus means by that. Jesus isn't saying the disciples are going to go out and catch people for judgment, but for salvation. Not out of wrath, but out of... Mercy. So why would Jesus use that analogy if it's a judgment kind of analogy? Well, I think two reasons. One is it tells us about the fishermen, but it tells us something about the fish. Ben alluded to some of this in his children's sermon. The qualities that a first century fisherman in this area had to have were interesting. They had to be courageous. The Sea of Galilee, when I was in Israel, the Sea of Galilee was beautiful. It was beautiful, blue, calm. It was a peaceful ride across the lake. But storms can come out of nowhere. And when the storms come sweeping in, Sea of Galilee is actually about, uh, I think it's about three or 400 feet below sea level. And so it's got these mountains all around it. It becomes like a bowl. And the winds come whipping around and these storms can pop up out of nowhere. It can be dangerous to fish on the Sea of Galilee. These men had to be courageous. It also required teamwork because they weren't just with a rod and a reel casting a line. They were throwing nets. 
And they were dragging these nets and then having to haul these nets full of fish into their boat. They, they, they had to put up sails. They had to deal with rigging. They had to sometimes row. It required teamwork. And they would sometimes fish all day and then fish all night. So it required stamina and energy and tenacity. And fishing back then was really no different than it is today in that it required some faith and a lot of patience. Now, you think about that. These were all qualities that these men would need to endure what was to come. The birth of the church. The spread of the gospel. The planning of churches. The persecution that they would face. They would need courage and tenacity and stamina and energy and patience and teamwork. And you know what? Those are qualities we need today too, isn't it? We need those qualities of fishermen. But then this analogy also tells us something about the fish. Because what happens to the fish after you catch them? What happens to the fish? They do what? They, they die. They die. Which is why Ezekiel and Jeremiah use it as a symbol of judgment. Because when you go hunting, the animal dies. When you go fishing, the fish dies. So how in the world does that apply to evangelism and salvation? Listen to what Jesus says later on in Mark chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. There's an upside-down nature to the kingdom of God. The first will be last. The least will be greatest. And if you want to live, you first must die. Die to yourself. Die to sin. Die to selfishness and shame. Die to the values and priorities of this world. Jesus says it's only when you're willing to die that you will ever truly live. I think it's interesting to notice here in this story that Jesus is the original fisherman, right? I mean, Jesus here, we see him, he's casting the net of the gospel over these four men. He's drawing them into the boat of the kingdom of God. And then once there, he sends them out to do the same. That's the great commission for us. When Jesus catches and cleans us, he then commissions us to go catch others and bring them to Jesus so he can clean them too. And this call, this call of Jesus demands a commitment. Just as the message of God demands a response, so the call of Jesus demands a commitment. Look at verses 18 through 20. At once they left their nets. At once. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. These men leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Their commitment was a total surrender. Take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. Jesus demands this all-in kind of commitment. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not just an Easter and Christmas thing. It's a daily commitment to walk with Jesus. And Jesus demands that kind of all-in commitment because of His authority. We've looked at His message. 
We've looked at His team of which you and I are a part. His message which you and I have believed and are to proclaim. But now we look at His authority. Jesus' Galilean ministry is centered in the town of Capernaum. And I want to take just a minute to give some background on Galilee and Capernaum because it really will help us to better understand the story going forward. Galilee was one of the most densely populated regions in the Middle East in the first century. Maybe you didn't realize that. It was a rich land for agriculture. They could grow anything there. The fishing industry was huge. The Sea of Galilee was teeming with fish. And it was a strategic region. Because if you remember your world history, you had the Fertile Crescent, remember? So you had like the the Tigris and Euphrates there in Babylon, and it went up uh, through Mesopotamia, and then it went down through Israel and into Egypt to the Nile. So you had this little strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert that was fertile. It was lush. It had water. It was a great place. The world passed through Israel, especially through Galilee. In fact, the two major trade routes intersected just outside of Capernaum. So it was strategic. Galilee was very cosmopolitan. Jews living aside, uh, Gentiles from all over the world. And, and on the east side of the Sea of Galilee was a region known as the Decapolis, means the ten towns. These were ten Gentile cities. The, almost the entire east side of the Sea of Galilee was Gentile territory. And Capernaum was especially strategic. If Jesus wanted to reach the world with his message... They're on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, famous for its fishing, its olive oil industry. Again, a very fertile area, and like I said, those trade routes converge right outside the city. So Capernaum was a city with lots of people living in it, working in it, passing through it. They had their own Roman garrison. They had dedicated tax collectors. It was a great place if you wanted to reach the world. So as we look at verses 21 through 39, through the rest of our passage for today, we're really catching a day in the life of Jesus. The story here starts on on Sabbath morning in the synagogue, and it ends uh, really the next day. And so this day in the life of Jesus shows us that through his preaching and through his miracles, the people of Capernaum were amazed. They were astonished. Because unlike the scribes in their synagogue... Jesus was a man with authority. Authority in word and deed. Now, to have authority means that you possess both the right and the power to do something. You have both the right and the power. So the first thing we see is Jesus' authority in his words. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, these teachers of the law, these Jewish scribes, were mostly Pharisees. They weren't all Pharisees, but mostly Pharisees. And their job was to basically read and copy and study and teach the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, Jesus' teaching, Mark says, was qualitatively different than that of the scribes. Because while the scribes spoke spoke from authority, in other words, they had studied, they'd read all the commentaries, they, they had these different rabbinical traditions they would, they would lean on, they'd quote these different people. They spoke from authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. See, Jesus didn't have to guess what the Old Testament Scriptures said. Jesus said what they meant, and guess what? They meant what Jesus said. Jesus wasn't just an interpreter 
of the Scriptures. He was the author of the Scriptures and the subject of the Scriptures. No wonder he spoke with authority in a way they had never, ever heard. He spoke with authority in his words. But then we also see that Jesus followed up his authoritative words with authoritative works. Let's continue on in verse 23. Just then, so Jesus is standing up doing what I'm doing right now. He's preaching. He's teaching in the synagogue. And it says, Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and he came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed. Wouldn't you be? (laughs) Wow. That they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. So naturally news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, when I read this story, the first question that pops in my mind is, what was a demon-possessed man doing in church? In church! Had this member of their synagogue always been possessed? Or is that something that just happened that morning? Maybe just had a, you know, got up on the wrong side of the bed, was possessed. I think he probably had been possessed a long time. Came every Sabbath day. Nobody knew. So what was different this day? Why this day did this spirit manifest itself? What was different? Jesus. The presence of Jesus was what was different. You know, sometimes we're not aware of our spiritual problems. Of the errors in our thinking. The wrongness of our way. Sometimes we don't realize the influence of the world in our hearts until the presence of Jesus makes it known. See, Jesus is the light of the world who's come into the darkness with God's truth. And as Jesus says in John, the darkness hates the light. Well, here we see a spirit of darkness panicked because the light of the world is there. 1 John 1.8 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He confronts and defeats the power of evil and He does it in a place of worship. Did you know the devil can work in a place of worship? Did you know the devil can do his work in a church? In fact, Satan does some of his best work in churches. He sows seeds of division and casts doubts. He hinders work and He makes us apathetic and distracted by unimportant things. He uses false teachers to lead people astray. When you find a church where Jesus isn't front and center, you'll find a church with Satan at work. But when Jesus is made the main thing, when He's the one that we all focus on, when His great commission is what motivates us and drives us, there's no room for Satan to get involved. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no room for the devil and his work. That's why we need to be Spirit-filled believers and a Spirit-filled church. And notice here that Satan and his demons know the truth. They hate the truth. They fight against the truth. They try to hide and twist the truth. But they know the truth. Notice this demon. 
is the first one way before Jesus' disciples ever got it. He acknowledges Jesus' humanity. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And his divinity, he calls him the Holy One of God. This demon knows. James 2.19 tells us, you believe there is one God? Good. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Listen, knowing truths about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. Just believing in God is not enough. All the time when I'm witnessing to people, I'm trying to share the gospel with people, the, the one thing, the one response I hear more than anything else is people say, well, I believe in God. Good. So does Satan. Believing in God alone is not enough. Just as repentance must be accompanied by belief in the gospel, so belief in, God, belief in God must be accompanied by a surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It's not just believing in God, it's what do you believe about Jesus that matters. Belief and submission, turning and trusting, go hand in hand. Now, Jesus' authority isn't only found in what he says and does. It's found in how he says and does it. Jesus, they're amazed because he preaches and teaches with authority. The people called it a new teaching, meaning new in kind. It was different, unique. They'd never seen anything like this. Well, even the way Jesus casts out demons and heals people is also different. Again, he does it with authority. Now, there were... Jewish exorcists all over the place back then. And when a Jewish exorcist would come in to somebody who was demon-possessed, they would come in with incense. They'd wave it around. They had herbs. They, they had these incantations, they would say. Uh, they, would, they would call on the, the archangels and the patriarchs to, to give them authority to persuade these demons to leave. Jesus has no incense. He didn't come with any herbs in his pocket. He doesn't issue any incantations. In fact, Jesus doesn't say much at all. The demon is the one that kind of prattles on. Jesus in the Greek issues a simple five-word command. And the Greek word, be quiet, is the same word he'll use on the wind and the waves on the stormy sea. It literally means be muzzled. In essence, Jesus looks at this demon and says, shut up and get out. And he does. Immediately. He has to obey what Jesus says. And the people are astonished and amazed. Are you? Are you astonished and amazed by Jesus? Or have you let these stories kind of grow stale and cold? Will we recognize? Will we hear? Will we obey Jesus' authority in our lives? Because listen, there are evil forces at work in our world today. Satan is real. Amen? Satan is real. He's at work in this world right now. And guess what? Jesus has authority over him. Jesus has authority. At his command, the evil forces have to leave and shut up. So let me ask you this. Will you be afraid of those forces? As they grow increasingly strong in our world, will you just kowtow, go along to get along? Or will you stand firm and strong in Jesus' authority in what you do and in what you say? Because if we truly follow Jesus and we expect Him to work in and through us, we will be amazed, we will be astonished, and the word of Him will spread quickly through the people around us. Jesus' authority is shown in how He teaches and His power over spiritual forces and over physical illness. Jesus speaks... 
People and demons listen and they flee. That's the power of his words. But next we notice the power of his touch. Let's look at verses 29 through 34. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon. And Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law, was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. In these two miracles, the casting of the demon and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we see that Jesus has power and authority over both spiritual and physical maladies. That he heals both men and women. That he can work at home and in the streets just as well as he works in church. Listen, don't leave Jesus at church. Be like Peter. Take him home with you. Because he can work in your home. He can work in your school. He can work in your place of work. We need the power and authority of Jesus present in every sphere of our lives. I think about Peter's mother-in-law. Healed of this fever. And I ask myself, what are the fevers in my life that I need Jesus to heal? What spiritual uncleanness and influence does he need to drive out from my heart? Jesus has the authority. But he never barges in uninvited. Will you let Jesus in? Will you let his authority be at work in your heart and mind? Because once we allow Jesus to work in our life, look what happens next. What did Peter's mother-in-law do the minute she was healed? She got up and did what? She served Jesus. That's what we do when Jesus works in our life. We want to serve Him. We want to serve others in His name. The Greek word there is the same word that we get the word deacon from. Peter's mother-in-law is a model for us of Christian discipleship and service. Now, all of this activity starts to pose a problem for Jesus. Remember, we're still in chapter 1. This is early in Jesus' ministry, and His popularity is already growing. The people are clamoring for His healing touch. Demons are crying out His true identity, and He's not ready for that yet. The people and the disciples aren't ready for that yet. Jesus has to keep silencing these demons. These things actually pose a threat to the fourth and final aspect, His mission. Let's finish this in verses 35 through 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. Okay, so far we've discovered that Jesus came to call people to repent of their sins and believe the gospel. He's called them to follow after Him so they can then go make other disciples. He's come to destroy and oppose the work of Satan. But to the people in the crowd, all they were interested in were the miracles. They just wanted the miracles. And at the end of this busy day of ministry, Jesus reveals the true essence of His mission through two priorities. The priority of prayer and the priority of preaching. Jesus was God, yes, but He was also human. And He needed to spend time with His Father, worshiping Him, loving Him, expressing gratitude to Him. He needed time to rest and refresh, to be refreshed, to seek the Father's will and the Spirit's empowerment for His ministry. And I also think He spent time in prayer to resist the temptation of the crowds. 
It's the same temptation he faced in the wilderness. It's the same temptation he'll face in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the temptation to avoid the horrors of the cross, to find the easy way out. There is no easy way for Jesus. He has to drink the cup of the Father's wrath on our behalf. He has to suffer and die on the cross in our place. And so he, he resists the, the call of celebrity. He resists the, the pressure of popularity. He knew the crowds were fickle. They wanted miracles from his hands, but they didn't care about the message from his mouth. They wanted what they could get from Jesus, but Jesus didn't come to give us things. He came to give us himself. He is the gift. But the crowds didn't understand, and neither did the disciples. So, so they find Jesus in his prayer time, and they interrupt him. Jesus, what are you doing hiding out here? People are looking for you. Come on, let's get busy. There's people to heal. The people who knew Jesus best understood him least. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the magnitude and the meaning of his mission, of why he was here. And so Jesus tells them. He tells them that he's here to preach the gospel. Now, what does it mean by preach the gospel? It's not just that Jesus came to teach about the gospel. Jesus came because he is the gospel. Jesus is the messenger, but he's also the message. And Jesus preached the gospel not just in parables and sermons. He preached the gospel by his death on Calvary's cross. Why did Jesus come? Yes, he came to destroy the works of Satan. To overcome sin and the curse and death and hell. He came to provide a way for every person to experience the eternal salvation and love of an almighty God. He came to make the way, to be the way to life eternal, abundant, and free. And he called, he came to call all men and women to come to him, to experience that life, and to go call others to be a part of that life. And both require dependence on the Spirit in prayer and the proclamation of the good news. This morning I want to ask you, have you responded to this good news? Have you responded to Jesus' call to follow Him? Have you left behind your life of selfishness and sin and shame? Listen, He wants to come into your life and to drive away the sin and the guilt. He wants to drive out the influences of the devil in your life. He wants to heal you from the fever of sin. Have you received the gift of His saving love? Have you submitted to His authority as your Lord and Savior? Listen, if you've not done that, if you have any doubt about that, I pray you would not leave this place until you know that Jesus is yours and you are His. And if you have accepted that call, if you have experienced that in your life, are you being like Peter's mother-in-law? Are you serving Him and others out of gratitude? Are you getting up and going out and being a fisher of men and women and boys and girls? We call it here, Who's Your One? Finding at least one person in your life that you know is lost and needs to be caught up in the net of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you go cast that net this week? Will you invite them to worship with you on Easter Sunday? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the cross and not giving up on us. Thank you for calling us to yourself and commissioning us to go to others. If there's anyone here that needs to answer that call to salvation, I pray they would do it right here, right now. Now is the time. The time has come. There is no delay. 
They're either going to accept or reject your invitation right now. They're either going to obey or disobey. I pray they would come and accept. And Father, I pray those of us that are Yours, empower us, burden us, help us to have the same sense of urgency that Jesus had and to go and to share with others the good news of Your grace. Lead us during this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.